Well, I'm glad to be back. I was at the pastor's conference this last week and had a great time, uh, really refreshing and refocusing and um, just being reminded of what the real priorities were. So that was great. And I'm also excited because today in Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be finishing the Sermon of the Mount. And today we're going to take a giant jackhammer, a sledgehammer to some preconceived notions that we may or may not have. Um, And we're going to look at some scriptures that we have here that if they're not interpreted properly, can lead us astray, at least in how we look at other people, how we look at other believers, or how we judge as non-believers. And hopefully, if we look at these verses in their proper context this morning, we will get rid of those misconceptions, and then we'll have a right way of thinking when it comes to how we judge each other. So let's go before the Lord in prayer, and we're going to start in verses 15 through 20. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we pray that you would teach us and direct us this morning as we draw closer to you. We want to have right beliefs, and we want to have a right judgment towards each other, and more importantly, for ourselves, Lord, and our relationship with you. And so we pray that you would guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read together. We're closing out the Sermon of the Mount in verse 15 of chapter 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Now, if anything else happens, I'm blaming you guys. So when we go back to our text here, we see we have false prophets and true prophets. We see that they're wolves in sheep's clothing. So these sheep are believers, and then the wolves are those that want to devour the sheep, and they're going to be dressed up looking like sheep. And then we're told to judge these wolves and sheeps and wolves and sheep's clothing based on their fruit. None of this makes any sense at the, uh, just as we're reading it plainly. How do you judge sheep based on fruit? And then he starts talking about trees and how we know the fruit because of the trees and the good trees and the bad trees. And then at the end, they're throwing them all into the fire. And so we start to apply what we know about the Bible here to start understanding what the Lord's talking about. And it seems easy enough, right? You're just going to judge each other by our spiritual fruit. Well, what's spiritual fruit? Seemingly, you would be talking about Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 talks about the works of the flesh, and then it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we walk in the Spirit, let us also, if we walk, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. i got to restart this thing. So it seems easy enough. You have these fruits of the Spirit. You must be a good Christian. You must uh, be a good one and you're doing okay, and if you don't do those things, it's going to be easy. We'll find out who the bad guys are, the wolves, and she's closing. And I call this a spiritual scratch-and-sniff test. Now, the younger ones in here, they don't have no idea what we're talking about because I think they banned these things. But you remember those stickers they used to have, and you would scratch it, and you smell it, and be like, oh, this one smells like peaches. Oh, this one smells like pumpkin spice. This is great. These are, these are awesome. And sometimes we think as Christians, we can just look at each other and just, oh, yeah, this one's doing really good. They're doing great. This is so easy. How do we get this? The issue is that that's not what this is talking about. And it's not true. Not to its extremes, that is. 
Now, I'm going to be talking a few times, and it's going to look like I'm talking in parallels, or I'm talking in things that are contradictions. And just give me some rope here, because we're going to tie it all together. But if we draw this application to its extreme, that would mean that those of us that have the most, quote-unquote, spiritual fruit, the most religious around us, or the most change, would be the ones that are most pleasing or the better Christians. But we know that's not true. That would also mean that those of us that have the least amount of change or outward appearance or spiritual works, that they would be the least and we would question their salvation. That is also not true in its extremes, I might add. There will be evidenced in a changed life, yes. But do not mistake religious habit or behavior modification as proof of salvation. I can tell you that because there are different religions and faiths and different types of self-help groups that will change behavior and make people better people, at least on the outside. But they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. We need to use the 2020 vision. When we're taking Jesus' words here and we want to use the 20 verses before and the 20 verses after. The verses right before this section from last week were that narrow is the way of salvation and broad is the way of destruction. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about being a true believer. We also know that because he says those that do not bear fruit or those that are seemingly fruitful but have no spiritual fruit, where do they go? Cast into the fire. He's talking about hell and damnation, words that people do not want to talk about anymore. Jesus is teaching us that it takes an authentic, real relationship with Him to be saved. This is very important. The emphasis is that He is the way of salvation. Now, let's read verses 21 and 22, and then we're going to spend a lot of time there as we dig deeper. Because He says in verses 21, excuse me, to 23, Let not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction from the previous verses that he just spoke about? He said, by their fruit you shall know them. And then now he says, even if you think you've cast out demons, even if you've done spiritual things, even if you have what we think on the outward is spiritual fruit, and even call on His name, you may even say you're a believer. You say you're a Christian. doesn't mean that you are. Well, this is important. Because as He talked about those bad trees, what did He say? They're cast into the fire. There are people out there that think they are Christians, and they are not. There are people that we look at on outward appearance and we say, wow, this person's an example. Wow, this person has it down. This person's doing great. I want to be like that person. And we find out they're not. Let me uh, attach it to an emotional experience. Every single one of us here, on one way or another, has been betrayed by a person. It might have been a romantic relationship, might have been a personal relationship, a friendship, a business relationship, where you've had somebody in your life that you put all your trust in in a certain area, you thought things were going one way, they looked on the outward like they were going well, and then all of a sudden it was revealed the truth. 
And we've all felt that burning knife that goes into the back that leaves that scar of distrust. Well, the same thing could be said of Christians. They can look on the outward to be one way and not be on the inward. And vice versa. As Christians, we can see people that we say, oh, no, not that one. No, it's not good. But then we find out when we enter into the other side, when we pass through the needle, the gate, and we go through into the kingdom, we're like, wow, what are you doing here? Mike Burford, what are you doing here? I can't believe it. Well, we know that salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. But here, the Lord is telling us, by their fruit we shall know them. And in just a verse later, he's saying, even some, though, that call on their name and have those works, they're not saved. So what is the difference? In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. This whole point, this whole point of this whole section is, do you have a real, authentic relationship with God? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Has He sealed you? Has He adopted you? Do you have a relationship with the true and living God? You can have a Bible. You can come to this fellowship on occasion. You can have a Calvary Country sticker on your car, and you cannot have a relationship with the Lord. Those things, they don't, one doesn't equal the other. But we can have somebody else who's out there not doing well. Maybe they're addicted to drugs. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they're uh, in a broken relationship, divorced three times. And they could be saved because they're sealed with His Spirit. In Romans, it says, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. Well, is that true? Of course. And we're going to look at other scriptures here. They're going to challenge our assessments, but the most important is where are you in your relationship? What does it mean to be His, to be saved? Well, in Romans 5.5, 5, it says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We must know first and foremost that we are saved by faith and not by work. So it is God's work in us and He seals us. Because we don't want to go around, like I said earlier, with that spiritual scratch and sniff, thinking, well, I know this Christian's a good one and I know this one's a bad one because of this, that, or the other. Only the Lord knows the heart. Only he knows the sincerity. Now, that being said, because some of you are thinking like, well, what about James chapter 2? Well, let's talk about James chapter 2. Because if you have a real authentic relationship with the Lord and you're sealed, you will have change one way or the other, some visible, some invisible. There, there may and there will be eventually fruit like we see in Galatians 5 on the outward. But James tells us in chapter 2, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which they are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. 
even the demons believe and tremble. And so I keep pouring on these contradictions, don't I? It's by faith alone, it's not by works. And then I say, well, but if you don't have works, you probably don't have any faith, you can have a dead faith. Oh, well, you can call upon his name and you could not really know him. Oh, but you should be changed and you should have some changes. And then at the same time, well, James just said even the demons and the devil believe in God and have a faith in God. They don't have a saving faith, not a repentant faith. And there are Christians that can do the same and say that they're a believer, but they're not. Well, I better have some biblical examples, shouldn't I? I can't just make these statements. But if every one of us were in the first century and we walked with the 12 apostles, none of us would say Judas is a non-believer. None of us would say, wow, Judas. You know, all the other disciples have these great miracles going on in healing and baptizing and preaching and teaching, and all of them say they're followers of Jesus, except for you. What's wrong with you, man? No, he would fit right in. In fact, on the Lord's Supper, before he's taken to be crucified, and Jesus tells them that one of them's a betrayer, they don't all point and look at Judas. I knew it the whole time. They're looking at each other. Like, which one? It can't be. Was it? Nobody knows. But the Bible tells us that Judas was never a believer. He's the son of perdition. And that's why we can't just say, oh, well, I know who's saved and who's not because I'm going to judge them by their fruit. The real fruit that Jesus is talking about here is salvation, being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Because if you're not sealed with the Holy Spirit, you'll be cast into the fire if he hasn't saved you. How about another example on the other side? King David is a murderer, an adulterer, a polygamist. He is a terrible father. He destroyed his family. And yet what does the Bible record him as? A man after God's own heart, someone who loved the Lord through all their failures and all of their mistakes. Well, let's use a New Testament example, Peter. Now, Peter is a tough guy. I love Peter. You'll remember before the Lord is taken, the temple guards come to take him, and Peter whoops out that sword, and he cuts off Malchus's ear. He is ready to go to war for the Lord. He said, I will never betray you. I will die for you, he says. Later that same night, he is blaspheming the Lord's name. He is saying he never knew him. He is betraying the Lord. In his moment, the most critical moment, he's betraying him. He is a traitor. And yet, after the Lord's resurrection, Jesus calls him to himself and says, You love me, Peter? And Peter's hesitant as we're replacing it, especially as you study it in the Greek. But Jesus says, Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And he's going to use him. And so if we take David and Peter, we would say, Man, you guys got some bad fruit. You're out. And we would look at Judas and we would say, Can you be the pastor of our church? You're fantastic. You're doing great. My point is that we need to be careful, especially when we judge others, because only the Lord knows the heart. But more importantly, where are you? Where is your relationship with God? Do you have an intimate relationship with Him? Some of us, in your relationship with God, it's just based on works. You're doing the right things. You're making changes. But that in and of itself doesn't mean anything. I said earlier, we never want to judge ourselves based on our changes in our habits, behavior modification, or our religiosity. 
the outward appearance. In my hometown, back in Lompoc, California, one of, the, one of the nicest and biggest buildings in that area is the Mormon Temple. And it has granite, up the, white granite up the side of the building, and it's etched in granite, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its founding, and it is the nicest building. And it has a nice parking lot, and it's always full. And it's always full, and they teach all kinds of things. And if you studied them, I mean, I grew up with a lot of kids that went to that temple, and their families were great, and they were honest, and they had great values, and they were personally, they were a great example. And outward, we would say, man, there's a lot of, quote, fruit from our terrestrial eyes. But when they die, and they're face to face with Jesus, none of that will matter if their faith is not in salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And are we doing the same thing? What is your relationship with God like? Do you have a personal, intimate relationship with Him? Are you sealed with the Holy Spirit? Now, I'll use a different example. Now, I am not a Calvinist. Now, what is a Calvinist? Some of us don't know. A Calvinist is someone that thinks that God predestined, He foreordains who's going to be saved, and He foreordains who's going to be damned, that He's only going to choose a certain amount, and that those people are never have a chance of salvation. That is not what Scripture teaches. He came into this world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved, and He wishes that wills that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's an oversimplification, but it's so I can tell this example. See, Spurgeon, who is a, an old pastor that a lot of people look up to from England, he was a Calvinist. But the hyper-Calvinists, those that were even more uh, extreme in their views, came to him and said, why are you teaching to everyone? And Spurgeon said this, when the Lord puts a yellow stripe up the back of the elect, I will only teach to the elect. Until then, I'm going to teach to everyone. I'm using that illustration for this. I don't know who's a believer and who's not a believer. I don't know who's sealed and who's not sealed. I don't know who trusts in Him and who doesn't. But I know that I do. And you should have the same confidence. I do not want to leave you here with fear or anxiety or doubt or wondering if you're saved or if you're not. You're saved by faith. Faith in God. But that being said... We should never be questioning what the minimum standard is to be a believer. Who goes into their marriage like that? Like, what's the least amount I can do and still be married? Like having a conversation with your spouse. Like, do I have to say I love you every day or can I do it like once a week? You know, I know we live together, but, you know, I might disappear for a few months and then I'll come back. Like, do we always have to talk? Or can I just not talk to you for a while? And we joke and we laugh. But with some people, that's their relationship with God, and you're trying to live on the edge. What's the minimum standard that I can have in this relationship and be safe? And we should be on the other side. How deep, how close can I get to God? How much can I know? How can I grow more intimate with Him? Can I learn things about myself? Because He reveals things, He empowers me, He changes me, He moves me, He molds me. And then this whole conversation doesn't matter. Because to know the Lord is to love Him, and to love Him is to have Him be in you and change you. It, it, they, they're not mutually exclusive. Now, I want to show us one last time to really put the nail in the coffin 
that we cannot just judge outward in outward appearances and outward actions. Because the Bible tells us in the last day that Satan and his prophet and his teachers are going to perform all kinds of miracles and all kinds of outward spiritual things. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it starts in verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's the Spirit. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one in according to the work of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who, did per who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be condemned who do not believe in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the enemy is going to be able to do all kinds of lies and wonders and signs. And if we didn't know any better, we would say, wow, that is real. Something's going on there. Except we do. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We have the moving of God in us. We are sealed and we are protected. And if you know and have a personal, intimate relationship with God, there is no doubt. If you do not, you can receive it just by asking Him and growing in Him. By reading and praying and asking, struggling with Him, struggling in your life and reaching out to Him and just being involved. He came into your life to give you this access to work in you. And He's telling us, we need to beware because there are people who on the outward appearance look like great sheep, but inside they are ravenous wolves. They want to destroy you and they want to eat you. And there's plenty of us, plenty of us sheep out there that look like we want to bite you and eat you and we'd say, no, they're the bad ones, but they're his sheep. Only the Lord can look upon the heart and know. There will be people on the outside we would say they're going to be at the front of the line in the kingdom there's going to be other people you know people that are addicted to drugs maybe they get shot robbing a bank after four divorces and we would say there's no way I'm not doing his funeral he's not a believer and he will be in the kingdom because he put his trust in God in fact we're going to see that now here in verses 24 through 27 not the bank robbing, but something else. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and they did not fall. It did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what you do. Our illustration is in the curve of the street, shot by the police, he's bleeding out and he's going to die. But because his trust and hope is in Jesus Christ and being sealed of the Holy Spirit, 
he will enter into the kingdom, not by his works, but by his faith and the grace of God. He had a shoddy house, but it was built on the rock. We have other people that we would look at and we would say they persevered to the end. What a miracle worker. What a great missionary. What a great pastor. What a great teacher. What a great, amazing leader. There's no way. And then he gets to the kingdom and Jesus just warned us earlier, depart from me, I never knew you. They were building for themselves. They were building their own reputation. They were doing things in the name of the Lord, but they didn't know or have a relationship with the Lord. You see, this is a criticism as much to me as it is to all of us. That doesn't matter how great your ministry is, how big this church gets, how many churches get planted or supported, how many messages we put out there, how many books we put out, how many podcasts we have. Unless it's the Lord building the house, they labor in vain that build it. It also means there could be five people in here. The word could never get out. We could never grow. But if that's the Lord's will and He's working in us, then it will have far more gain than anything we could see on the outside. But if you're like me, you're a little greedy, a little selfish. How about we have a great house on the great rock, on a firm foundation? How about we have both? But the test is the same. Not only will life test these things, being the storm that will test, but the most important test is the ultimate test. It's when you close your eyes for the last time and you enter into the kingdom. That's when your works will be judged. And that's when you'll enter in or not. Is this real? Is this authentic? This is what we talk about all the time in this fellowship. Having a real, authentic relationship with God with a real, authentic life for real, authentic people. We don't want anything fake. And that's what we desire. So the question then, the ultimate question is, how do we do this? When we leave here, we want to be equipped to do this. And Jesus teaches us in John chapter 15. When he teaches us to abide in him, have a relationship and grow and be attached to him. He says in John 15 too, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, I and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch that is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Just simply abiding in in God, just resting and trusting in Him. You know, branches, they're not out there. You don't see them sweating, with just perspiring in effort to try and stay attached to the tree or to the bush. The branches just get fed from the trunk and the roots, and they just grow. They just live. They just abide. And we're to abide in Christ, to be attached to our Creator, to receive and to be with Him, and He will change you. And His grace covers everything, no matter how bad you are, how broken you are, He's moving in you, He's changing you. 
which brings us to the close of the Sermon on the Mount in verses 28 through 29. He says, and so it was, it's written as, so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Well, that's because he is the authority. He is the word. He is the way. And so we see from the Sermon of the Mount this contrast between his holy, righteous kingdom standards and his personal perfection, and it's contrasted to us in our world, which is broken. We can't keep these things. We can't do these things. They're impossible, except for that God came to us to make a way to reconcile his creation to himself. We started in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes that showed us that faith transforms our character. Then in verses 13 through 16, we saw that we were salt and light and that our faith affects our influence in the world. In the close of chapter 5, we saw God's standards for the law and his interpretation and how we were not even close. We can't keep a single one. Then he touched us and he showed us a true devotional life in the beginning of chapter 6 when he talked and taught us how to pray and how to fast. And then in the middle of chapter 6, towards the close, he taught us about our physical ambitions, our financial ambitions, our secular ambitions on money and wealth. And then when we started chapter 7, we saw that our relationships are transformed because of the way that we judge others and the golden rule and how it's applied. And then finally here, the middle of chapter 7 into the close, he showed us what wholehearted servants are like, devoted to him, and also how to discern between false prophets and true prophets, knowing that there are those that are seeking to devour us. And so we see the king here. He is the answer to all the issues that he's showing to us. And it reminds us the beginning of this gospel. When he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down, and what did God say? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we abide in him and we grow in him and we listen to him. And so I'm so excited to continue this journey now in chapter 8 next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy, that you're the solid rock on which we stand. We thank you that faith comes by grace and that you use us and mold us and shape us into your image and that it's your works, not ours, Lord. And when we do those authentic things that the world can see, we pray that you would receive the glory. And I pray that we would leave here encouraged in a deeper relationship and understanding with you. I pray for those that are questioning and doubting their salvation, that they would just wholeheartedly trust and abide in you. Pray for those that don't know you here this morning, that they would accept you through a simple prayer of faith, that you'd fill them with your spirit. We lift all these prayers up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you don't know the Lord, you don't know, and you want to be saved, come up. We'll talk with you, pray with you. If you need to be encouraged, we'll be up here. God bless you and have a wonderful week.